Hi, I'm Rachel Bernstein. I'm an educator and licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm also known as a cult expert. And I've worked with victims of cults and high control groups for over 30 years. I was personally drawn to this work after a family member was indoctrinated into Scientology. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Indoctrination. I created the show to help survivors tell their stories and for experts to teach us what they know. My goal for Indoctrination is to empower the listeners to protect themselves and to protect those they love from predators, toxic personalities, and destructive organizations. Since I started the podcast, I've interviewed over 200 survivors and experts and journalists who took the time to come on to cover dozens of different high control groups and cults from a variety of different angles. You can listen to Indoctrination for free anywhere podcasts are available with new episodes dropping every Wednesday. to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Troy, how the fuck are you? I've had a bit of a rough week, to be honest, Brian. I, I think it's this, the economic climate, the the stress that we're under at work, the, the pressure that I'm feeling there, I think is taking its toll on me a little bit and I'm a little bit tired and I, I just feel a little bit under pressure, to be honest. There's a song about that, but we won't sing it right now. But uh, I completely agree. And you and I were having a chat earlier this week and there's a weird feeling around. It's a really strange time. And I know we've been talking a lot at my work about we've had three years of this COVID environment, this coming out the other side of it now. I, I think we're trying to sense make, but also the world is in overdrive it is craziness. I feel a constant pressure. I feel a busyness and all those things that I really don't like to live that way. If I was still a Christian, I would be spiritualizing this and saying that there's something going on in the spiritual realm because I can really feel it, you know, because it's not necessarily tangible. I really would have spiritualized this, I think. Well, that, that was a bit of a safety net always, wasn't it? that if you didn't quite know how to sense make something, you would spiritualize it. That's right. Exactly right. And talking about spiritualizing, this week we're going to do a follow-on from episode 79, which was Troy deals with his religious trauma in Korea. And you're going to keep continuing to deal with your religious trauma, but in another country. Where are we going to take it today, Troy? We're going to go to sunny Singapore. And, you know, I was thinking about it. I don't know that that title really suits either of those episodes. I mean, we'll leave them. But Troy didn't really deal with his religious trauma at all. It was more Troy trying to cope with his religious trauma because I, I, I wasn't conscious of it. I wasn't really trying to deal with it. I was parking it a lot in this time. Yeah, and, and look, I think a lot of these titles that we give things are a bit of a hindsight title. You wouldn't have even known that you were 
in the middle of any religious trauma, I'm sure, would have been suppressed and maybe in your subconscious. As we said before, the term didn't exist, religious trauma. I mean, maybe Marlene Winnell was using it in writing her books at that time, I'm not sure, but I don't think anybody was was using it. And certainly I knew nothing of it. And even if it had been around, I had no idea that's what it was. You know, you and I said basically general head fuckery is what we called it. Yeah, and I think that's a, probably a diagnosable thing these days, general head fuckery, and there's many different factors that contribute. But today, we're going to talk about how your spiritual past or your religious past, your Pentecostal, your fundamentalist past, fucked you up and continued to keep fucking you up. Isn't that the theme of this whole goddamn podcast? You know what I mean? Like, not just this episode. The, the whole thing is just how it's screwed us both over. And we Maybe we changed the title of the podcast to I was a teenage. I was fucked. Yeah, I was a teenage <laughs> head fuckery victim. Um, I'm not sure. Not as happy as Ross and Carrie, <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> oh, yes. I know what we could call it. We could call it, oh, no, fucking Troy and Brian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's us. That's us. So where are we going to? We, we left episode 79. We're starting to nudge into you're coming to Singapore, and then we put a pin in it, as you would say. Put a pin in it. Put a pin in it. And now we are taking the pin out today and picking up in Singapore. Yeah, well, actually, just before we get to Singapore, what happened in about Christmas time, and I can remember it was Christmas time because it was all decorations everywhere all over Hong Kong. I went to Hong Kong with a colleague of mine. We weren't a couple or anything. We were just we were just mates. She and I decided to go to Hong Kong on a whim. It was just, let's go to Hong Kong. Okay. And that was the cool thing about living there. It's like traveling domestic, really, because it's just so close. When I got there, Hong Kong, there's a lot more English. This is in 2000, by the way. So Christmas time, 2000. There's a lot more, there was a lot more English. There was, it's just a lot more cosmopolitan than Korea. Korea was very much the Wild West. I got there and just thought, this is amazing. This is where I want to live. And I'd been to Singapore, as you know, you know, that's where I'd had my whole sort of religious breakdown. And Hong Kong was cool, but I thought, oh, should I go to Hong Kong or should I go to Singapore? And I decided that I was going to go to Singapore. I thought I really had a good time when I had been there in the couple of times that I'd, I'd been there. And of course, that religious breakdown thing had happened in Singapore as well. And I think Maybe I'm reading into this, but maybe there was a, a wanting to pick up from from there in some ways. I don't know. I, maybe I'm making this up. But when I was in Hong Kong, I met a guy in a bar. We were just talking one night and he was a full-on hippie and he was Western. I can't remember what country he was from, UK, US, Australia. I don't remember. But he was a full-on Hindu. Like he had totally you know, spent time in India and Nepal and all this kind of stuff. And we were talking. And remember, at that stage, I was still believing in God and believing in Jesus and stuff, even though I wasn't living up to it. And as we talked, he said, he was asking me where I lived. And I said, I was living in Korea. And he goes, oh, in some Hindu worldviews, Korea is actually a kind of purgatory. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah. So People go there to have their spirits purged. 
And if you're born there, well, wow, in your last life, you must have been really bad. And it really sort of, even though I didn't really believe it, part of me at the same time was like, oh, well, okay. And it really resonated with me, you know, and I thought, I got to get out of here. (laughs) I got to get out of purgatory. So I decided, yeah, Singapore was where I was going to go. Another thing that happened to me in Hong Kong was I met a friend of mine named Paul. We met in a club one night and I introduced him to to my colleague as well. And we got along really, really well. And so we, so we just sort of stayed in touch. And when I got back to Korea, he and I continued to stay in touch by email and stuff. Later that year, I actually went to Thailand with other colleagues and he happened to be there because a friend of his was getting gender reassignment surgery. And we, we caught up again and and that's when I said to him, look, I'm really thinking about moving to Singapore. And he's like, come, you know, I'm, I, I've since moved back. He'd actually moved back to Singapore, which is where he's originally from. Come, you know, I'll help you get set up and all that. I wanted this career move. I wanted more than just hiding out in Korea. And as you know, I'd love my times in Singapore. Remember there was that girl that I'd met when I'd been doing that that cult busting thing. And I'd never sort of let her go because it was always, oh, I wonder what could have happened. So that was another driver for me to get back to to Singapore. And I'd met this model in Korea who was a Singaporean. She was a mix, mixed race. She was British Singaporean mix. Her name was Jolene. And we got along really well as well in 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 the times that we were hanging out and I wanted something more from her but she'd had a boyfriend and but she was in Singapore as well so I had these contacts and I had these reasons to go you know there's a couple of girls that I like my my friendship with Paul was was growing and we you know bumped into each other in a couple of places so yeah it was kind of cool so I ended up getting a job as I mentioned in the last episode a friend of mine had a friend who had left his job and so they were looking for someone and it just all sort of slotted in. So the universe was aligned and everything was was falling into place. And so I moved to Singapore. I think it was about September 2001 was when I actually arrived in, in Singapore. Remember I told you when I arrived in Korea, I just felt so alone. It was, it was tangible. It was, it was horrible. It was soul crushing to be so alone and having such a tight community in Korea, arriving in Singapore, I just felt so alone. And, and I think it shows that all this stuff that I had buried was still deep within me that I just, well, I hadn't dealt with anything. I hadn't coped with anything. It was all just there. And I went to sleep that night in a, I was in a backpacker's hostel. I got myself at my own room, but it was, you know, only like $30 a night or something. And I just cried myself to sleep. And I just thought, oh, what have I done, you know, coming here? And, and to be honest, that was an omen of things to come because Singapore was never good for me. Did you have a sense, like you were saying before, that you know, all this stuff was just sitting there, it was bubbling away. And then obviously that's at that point culminated in you obviously being quite upset, quite traumatised to the point where you're crying yourself to sleep. Did you have any idea what was happening or was your head just a, a big jumble of head fuckery? Yeah, it was a bit of both. I think I knew that this religious stuff needed to eventually be dealt with. I needed to resolve it in some way. And my thinking was that I always... I'd eventually have to get my life right with God. I would eventually have to 
sort myself out, as I did, you know, post-Revival Centre before joining the AOG. But I had said to myself this time I didn't want to do it because I was forced to. I'd do it when I was ready. I think what had also happened, Brian, is the community of church and that close community, and we talked about that. That's what draws people to cults and draws people to high-control religion. I think I had replaced that with that intense community of the expats in Korea because we were all in this difficult situation and away from everybody and we just really came together really, really close. And so that community, whilst it was meeting authentic needs, maybe it wasn't the best thing for me. Maybe that's why, I I don't know, man, I'm I'm just speculating. But when I got to Singapore, it was quite obvious that I didn't have that anymore and I just felt at a loss. I just felt so alone and I was like, oh, what the fuck have I done? I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I, I, it was, I think it was a combination of, yes, I knew that there were things that I needed to deal with, but I didn't want to and I didn't know the depth of it or the, the extent of it. It was just fucking with my head. So as a, a Westerner, were, were the barriers to becoming connected because you're a Westerner? I, I know there's large expat communities in Singapore, as there there is in, in many countries. Or were the barriers, do you think, self-imposed, that you were just not quite knowing where you fit in? What was your take on that? I don't think the need to make friends and to connect and everything was as strong in Singapore as it was, this is for expats, as it was in Korea, because it wasn't such a sharp contrast. I mean, it was, it it was very different, of course, and there is expat bubbles and all that, but it just, it just wasn't quite the same. A lot of people were living a very similar lifestyle to what they would have lived at home. Whereas in Korea, it was, it was radically different. I don't think people were as open and I don't think people were as warm as they were in in Korea. And that's from an expat perspective. I mean, Singapore's a funny place and apologies to anyone who's Singaporean listening to this, but it's a very hierarchical culture. You'd say, well, so is Korea, sure. But the Singaporeans were post-colonial, so they had a bit of a chip on their shoulder around expats and around people from, you know, colonial countries. And so, whereas Korea would let you not play the game if you didn't want to, you know, they didn't care. You're just a a wayguk saram, you just do whatever you want. The Singaporeans were more about, no, you will respect our culture. You will be a part of our culture, you know, to the extent that we expect you to be. And, and so there was, there was a very, very different vibe. The other thing about Singapore, if you've been there for any extended period of time, and I don't just mean holidaying, is it's a very work-driven culture and it's a very money-driven culture. I always felt quite poor when I was there. I think a lot of people pretend in Singapore that they've got a lot more money than they do. I think a lot of the expats fall into that trap as well and it's all about how much money you've got and showing off how much money you've got. And I was a teacher and I certainly wasn't getting, I I wouldn't even be getting as much money in Singapore as I would have got back in Australia as a teacher. It's an incredibly wealthy country, as most people would know. It's so that hierarchy is undoubtedly you've got your worker classes that come in from often from other countries. So there definitely is that I don't know, a bit of a superiority culture too. I mean, I've been there 
And again, only for holidays, so not immersed. But I could have just been as easily stepping off a plane into Melbourne. So I agree with what you're saying before that it was, and I've travelled extensively through Asia, Southeast Asia, and I love going, getting immersed in a, another culture. I didn't feel like I was getting that in Singapore. I felt like I was just going into another Western city. Yeah, well, it's funny because they are a very wealthy nation, but not a lot of people in that country are very wealthy and a lot of people are struggling, even the Singaporeans. But you're right, they do bring a lot of the labourer class from surrounding nations. Yeah, so it was, it, was, it was hard slog from the very beginning and it really wasn't my kind of city. But Paul, Paul had moved back from Hong Kong. He was very much in with a glamorous crowd and a glamorous scene. And so he connected me into that quite quickly. And as I said in our last episode, I mean, I was going to these parties with with people who, you know, were connected to people like Robbie Williams and Donatella Versace and people that were working MTV Asia. And I was going to these parties and these penthouses on, you know, in the top of these buildings with swimming pools in their penthouse on the top of their on the top of these office blocks. You know, it was really a, a radically different sort of exciting. It was more like Melbourne clubbing than than anything I'd seen in sort of Korea. So there was a lot of expat corporate types. There were, you know, there were models and performers, and there was at least the appearance of lots and lots of money. Whether people didn't have a lot of money and were pretending, or whether people did have a lot of money, and some of them did, because these parties that we were going to in the in these locations, but it was a dangerous crowd. To quote Billy Joel, dangerous crowd, ain't too pretty, ain't too proud. No, it was the opposite of that. It was very pretty and very proud. But there was a lot of bad shit going on at those parties. And I think there was a lot of exploitation of people. I think there was a lot of exploitation of women as well. I think women were seen as commodities in a lot of these parties. You know, it was like all about being the men were rich and the women were pretty. And and that's sort of how it was. There was a lot of drugs there as well. And interestingly, Singapore puts a really high tax on booze. So it was really expensive to get drunk. And of course, I'm an alcoholic. So there's a lot of drugs flying around at these parties and they're being handed out or given away. And it was just really, really dangerous. And I, and if you know anything about Southeast Asia, like there's death penalties, there's mandatory sentencing for possession and usage. And it's just really, really intense. And I wasn't a big drug user at all. But you're going to these parties and things are being offered to you. And there was one guy there once, he was this kid from Hong Kong, and he was just absolutely off his face. And he opened his little, you know, his little fanny pack, his little bum bag, and he opened it up and he just pulled out all these drugs. And I mean enough, there was enough drugs that he pulled out of this bag one night and put on this table that everyone, if they'd split it evenly, we all would have got the death penalty. I mean, this kid pulled out all these tablets and pills and stuff. It was just intense. And I remember people just putting on their shoes and leaving the leaving the building, right? And I was just, and people coming up to me saying, Troy, you need to go. This is just not safe anymore. And so it was really quite dangerous. So there was a lot of people high at a lot of events and or a lot of parties. And yeah, it was, it was really quite full on. I remember another night 
we decided to go swimming, right? We're at this party and this group of guys, and, and they were gay guys, by the way. And, and you know, they were gay guys were, were normal and typical for, for these kinds of parties. You know, a lot of them were friends with Paul and, and other stuff as well. And they were local guys. And they said, hey, let's go swimming, you know. So we all, you know, got changed. People lent us clothes and everything. I went down and went swimming with them. And then it was really strange because it started to feel a bit weird, like couple of them and they were like big buff gay guys you know started getting kind of flirty with me and everything and and I was like oh what have I I I just thought we were going swimming you know and and then next thing you know there's like three of them sort of in around me circling me and then they started you know saying you know go and give us a kiss or whatever they were saying and then next thing you know two of them have like physically grabbed me and they're holding me while another guy's coming up and basically it was like I, I I started to absolutely panic because I thought, am I about to get raped in a swimming pool in Singapore? And I'm fighting them off and they're just like these were big buff guys. And I was pushing and and there was another young gay guy who was sitting out on the on the side of the pool and he's watching me and I could see in his face he was worried. And then I just thought, oh fuck. You know, and, and really, I thought I was, I thought I was going to get raped, and I just was pushing and kicking, and then I just started swearing at him, and then I started yelling, and then I think they realised, oh, you know, this is not going to go well for them, and they all sort of backed off. I was completely out of my depth, excuse the pun, even though I was in a swimming pool. It just was getting really, really dark. The the world that I was living in, and the world that I was connecting to. I'd like to tell you that I stopped going to those parties, but that was all I sort of had. Brian, it was like, I'm not in Kansas anymore. I'm in Southeast Asia. There's all this glamorous stuff going on. There's, you know, gay guys trying to freaking Sodom and Gomorrah me. And then there's drugs everywhere. And there's, uh, it just, it just got out of hand. And I just felt really lost. It sound, it sounds quite scary um to to be honest so what's happening for you at, at this time you've again where this episode is about religious trauma have you got anything bubbling away in the back of your mind where you you're going ah, there's there's god and there's that reconciliation that i'm going to have to make one day because that was your logical next step was coming back to god was there anything conscious happening there well, yeah, I mean, that's why I'm telling these stories about this sort of prodigal son stuff that was going on, because it was like, the more I got into, in air quotes, the world, the darker and darker it got. And so there was a real fear there for me that, you know, I was just going too far and that I needed to get myself right with God. Singapore has a large Muslim population. And so one night I was at this party and there was a girl there, her name was Marnie. And she was a Malay girl, so she was a Muslim. And we started talking and she said to me, oh, yeah, my family are full-on Muslims. And, uh, you know, I've, but I, I don't have anything to do with that anymore. And then she said this to me. She said, I still believe in Allah, Muhammad, and the Quran, but I don't go to mosque. And it was really strange because I had actually, I looked at her just shocked because I had literally said to people, oh, yeah. I still believe in God and Jesus and the Bible, but I don't go to church. And I had literally said those words. And so when she said that to me, it was like, oh, 
only the names have been changed. And it was like, this was fundamentalism. And I was conscious of it in that moment. I was like, she's dealing with exactly the same thing. And yet I would say that her religion is not true. So maybe mine's not true either. And I just had this little moment that you couldn't have scripted, that you couldn't have expected, where I'm confronted with a Muslim fundamentalist who has walked away, talking to a Christian fundamentalist who has walked away, and we're dealing with exactly the same thing, just the names had been changed. And that was profound, Brian, for me. I mean, even telling you this now, 20-something years later, I can remember the moment exactly where I was because it was like, what do you do with this? This means your religion might not be true, let alone trying to get yourself right with God. So, yeah, man, that was that was a, a, a moment. So this is going on, and this is what I'm doing on the weekend, right? But So I'm, get, I'm sort of got these shallow connections. There's no meaning. There's no meaningful community. I'm unsatisfied. I'm, I've had these scary moments. This money-minded society is really pissing me off. I'm miserable in my job. It's very hierarchical. And it was just, you know, I thought the hug ones were bad. It was basically a Singaporean uh, version of the Korean hug one. It was just terrible. So I started looking for another job. And I think part of me also wanted to try and get out of this darkness scene that I was in. And so funny enough, I connected with a couple of Korean guys um, and they were big drinkers. So we were spending shitloads of our salaries on on booze as you do in um, in Singapore. And, and they were a lot of fun. But I, 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 find, I found another job at a place called AIT, which was this Australian TAFE college which is like a community college style thing. And they had Australian programs running in Singapore, mostly for Vietnamese and Chinese and other ASEAN nations. But then they had trouble getting me a visa. So I decided while I'm waiting for my visa, because I'm not got any money coming in, I'll go back to Australia. So I was thinking I'd go back and live with my mum and dad, who were living in Queensland by that stage. But a friend of mine who I'd been to Bible college with who was now still going to the inner city Church of Christ, she invited me to come and live with her and her fiancé. So they were about to get married. They were sharing a house and, in air quotes, not sleeping together. And she said to me, why don't you come and take the the spare room? And I think in her mind, and I might be wrong. She, she listens to the podcast, so forgive me if I've got this wrong. I think she was thinking he's in a bad place. He's in a dark place because I was pretty honest with her. Let's bring him back and try and help him out. And I think her hope was that I was going to come back, get my shit together and maybe stay. Whereas in my mind, I was coming back waiting for a visa and then I was going to take off. But I was thinking about the possibility of maybe continuing on with my psych degree. So there was a possibility there of doing that. They were still really involved in that inner city Church of Christ. And they had an engagement party. And they asked me to come along to the engagement party, you know, because I'm, I'm a friend and I'm living in the house, of course. And when I got there, it was full of inner city Church of Christ people, AOG people, Bible college friends, full on fucking in your face. And I really turned it up and turned it on that night that I was just the biggest fucking success. And I just played it super extrovert, 
you know, telling everyone how successful I was and telling big time stories and all this, because I didn't want to appear to them that I was heading down the dark path because that's the stereotype, right? And that's what I think they would be maybe not happy to hear, but you know what I mean? It would suit the narrative. Absolutely it would. And I can, <laughs> I just can only imagine what that would have been walking in to a room of those people that really were the face of a lot of your trauma. They were the face of the stuff that you had repressed, that you'd run from, and you really didn't want to face. So I, I can only imagine what that was like. And I can I can completely understand you wanting to ham it up a bit and go, hey, everything's good. I don't need God. Yeah, and I had been in Singapore with these, you know, glamorous parties and shit, and I had, you know, gone to the gym. I'd lost a shitload of weight. Uh, you know, I was Singapore tanned. To them, at least on the outside, I looked like it was was really together and it was really awesome. But again, I did not want to play into the narrative that I was the prodigal and that my life was going to shit, even though it was, right? Yeah, it was it was really interesting being at that party and, and I, I can see it now in my mind. It was an impactful moment. I think I might have gone to a service, one service while I was there, but it was it was empty and shallow and just, you know, didn't connect with me or I was empty and shallow and it didn't connect with me. So even though you you know that you're in this dark place, that you're a little bit stuck at that time, you know, we've spoken about that you were thinking that your natural path would be a path back to God in some sort of way. There'd be some repentance back to God was this scene that you'd step back into, even momentarily, were you thinking, oh, maybe maybe this is it, maybe this is what I need to step back into, or was that com- just completely repulsive? It was completely repulsive. Remembering that I still thought that maybe I needed to get myself right with God in some way. So I was having conversations with people, like, you know, the the pastor of the, the inner city Church of Christ and, and, and others, I was having religious chats with them, but I didn't think the answer was there. I didn't think they had the answer because I'd, I'd been through that process. I'd played it all out, Brian, right right to the nth degree. You know, I, I, I knew it wasn't there, but I didn't look down on these people. I still really loved them and still really valued them, even though remembering a lot of them hadn't been in touch with me via email and all that kind of stuff. But when I step back into the world, they're all very welcoming and they're all very warm. But anyway, what happened was my visa came through for Singapore and I was like, see you later, suckers. <laughs> you know, I'm out of here. So I ended up back in Singapore. So how long were you back in Australia for? I reckon it was about two months waiting for my visa. Okay. So that's a fair whack. I, at this time, was not living in Melbourne, where you would have come back to. I was living in Queensland myself. So we didn't catch up. But did you catch up with, besides that engagement party, with many of the old crew, the old friends? And how did that go? Well, I did catch up with Paul, my church planting friend. And he was, you know, this is after he told me, you know, that I needed to repent of my divorce and all that kind of stuff. I think I was more wanting to connect with these people than they were wanting to connect with me, if that makes sense. So I put a lot of the energy into going and seeing them and visiting them. And 
but I don't think they were very necessarily very tolerant of my lifestyle and the lifestyle choices because I was still telling people what I was up to. I was still sharing it openly. I wasn't hiding the fact that I was living a, you know, in air quotes, worldly lifestyle. Well, yeah, well, let's remember also, I know you're in a, a church, the, the inner city church of Christ, which has, you know, got probably a little bit more edgy people than you would have in the AOG. But still, I'm sure that with the context of where you had been the last couple of years, that that wouldn't have been edgy at all. The context for them was edgy, but for you, it still would have been that, I guess, a, a conservative space. So you would have been incredibly challenging to them. You would have been incredibly confronting to them. Even the success or, you know, you, you certainly trying to show your success, that would have been incredibly confronting to them. I don't know if it would have been confronting to them, perhaps, but I think there were a lot of people who themselves are on the edge of leaving. And I had been a very much a big part of that community. It wasn't like I was a fringe person who just sort of floated back in. Like I had been preaching at that church and everything and, you know, and all of a sudden to come back all glammed out living overseas, you know, super, super successful, at least to the picture that I was painting. I think a lot of them were actually looking at me and going, oh, you know, those that were thinking about leaving themselves. Oh, maybe there is life after. And, and in that sense, that was true. You know, I, it was, it wasn't like I was, you know, out of work and on heroin. So I think for a lot of them, seeing that there was life after in a city church of Christ, and it wasn't just doom and gloom. I think that that was, for want of a better word, I was sharing my testimony, brother. Yeah, well, and maybe you helped others walk away at that time. Who knows? But I, I don't know. I just think from what you've talked about that church before, it saw itself as progressive, but there was it was still quite fundamentalist underneath. So it wasn't progressive in the way that it was a universalist approach, that it was one way, one pathway to God. So the fact that you weren't on that path to their God, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I would imagine that many people would have found it confronting that you had fallen away, essentially. What do you do with that when someone has fallen away in their eyes and isn't doing that bad. And the other thing to note is not long after that, that church closed down. Yeah, the pastor and his wife decided to move on. They handed it on to someone else and then it slowly kind of dissolved and it, it doesn't exist today. So so they were at a funny stage themselves. But anyway, look, I, I, I got a job. I got my visa. I headed back to Singapore. Hey, Brian, it's US summer right now. And I reckon we could take the bite out of summer with HelloFresh. From chef-crafted seasonal recipes to their new fresh and fit summer menu, HelloFresh is going to bring flavour right to your door. And talking about flavours, summer crowd-pleasing eats. From Backyard Bratwurst Bar to Tangy Key Lime Pie. I love Key Lime Pie. That is definitely a family favourite. HelloFresh Market makes summer entertaining a cinch. It's an easy one. So now, being the peak time for summer produce and HelloFresh, make sure you get all the best picks all season long. And I love how HelloFresh saves us time. 
And it also helps us just not worry about recipes because it's all there. We just follow it. Everything we need is easy and fast. That's right. Even you and I can follow it. And that is saying a lot, isn't it? So go to HelloFresh.com slash Teenage50 and use the code Teenage50 for 50% off plus free shipping. So that's go to HelloFresh.com slash Teenage50 and use the code Teenage50 for a massive 50% off plus free shipping. America's number one meal kit. Are you doubting your religious beliefs? Having questions about changing or leaving your faith? Well, you're not alone, and Recovering From Religion is here to help. Learning how to live after questions, doubts, and changing your religious beliefs is a journey. The people at Recovering From Religion are intimately familiar with this path and are there to help you cross that bridge. Their passion is connecting others with support, resources, community, and most of all, hope. They offer both peer and professional support. Find out more by visiting recoveringfromreligion.org or find the links in our show notes. Hey, my name is Bart Campolo. And if you've listened to this podcast for very long, you may already know who I am because I was a guest on this very show. I was a professional evangelical for a very long time before figuring out that I didn't believe in God anymore. And here's the deal. For the better part of a decade now, I've had my own podcast for people like me, people like you, people who are interested in what life looks like after faith. On Humanize Me, we try to figure out how to make sense of things when you don't believe in God anymore, where I talk to artists and scientists and activists and writers, all of whom are sort of wrestling with this question, like how do we make meaning? How do we build better relationships? How do we cultivate gratitude and wonder for the privilege of existence? How do we make things better for other people in a thoroughly secular way? If you're interested in that kind of conversation, someday you might want to check out Humanize Me, and I hope you do. In the meantime, back to Brian and Troy. Not long after I arrived in Singapore, I started this new job. I was a student welfare officer. I wasn't teaching, which was fantastic. And I met this, and she was at that stage, I guess, young woman, young girl, and her name was Renee. I met her. She was a mainland Chinese girl. First day I met her, I just thought, oh, she's cute. And we connected right away. We, we actually met that day and went out that night. She was young, which for me was like, oh, do I really want someone sort of this young? But she was fun. We were really into each other right away. It was exciting. It was intense. It was, it reminded me of that Singaporean girl that I had had that connection with before, which by the way, I had tracked her down and um, it, it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Renee and I connected really, really fast. Basically we fell in love is what happened. My parents came over to visit and I introduced her to my parents and, and all that. And, and it was going really, really well, but my work situation was really bad. And so I had already decided that I was going to leave. This is probably after about a year, I was going to leave Singapore. And so I actually got myself a job in Korea and I thought I'll go back. Right now, by that stage, Renee and I, I like I'd started organizing this slowly over a period of time. And then Renee and I fell harder and harder for each other, but it was sort of too late. Everything was in play and it was a really hard decision to make because 
Renee was amazing and yet Singapore was just so shit, right? And I had pulled back from a lot of that party stuff by this stage and moved away from that. But I decided I'm going to take the job, but I'm going to have this long-term, long-distance relationship with Renee, which might have seemed a bit silly, the idea that I was going to have this long-distance relationship across countries with this girl who's living in a country that I hate. But I decided that's what I was going to do. So I went for 12 months to Korea. That was the the contract. And I got there and within the first few weeks, I was like, oh, I'll just do six months. Anyway, a month later, I had packed up and I was back in Singapore looking for another shitty job so that I could be with Renee because she basically hooked me. And it was so different to my first marriage because this wasn't a sort of a functional, contractual, what the Lord wants, meeting the right woman. So, uh, you know, she's going to be my my helpmeet to plant churches or anything like that. This was just, I was right into this girl. She was right into me and it was awesome. So I went back to Singapore, yeah, for Renee. I got a job at another language school. Um, so I was teaching again. That's the only sort of work I could find. Renee and I moved in together. But I can remember, and this is where, I had one of these, another one of these moments where I was sitting at work one day, I was reading the Singapore newspaper, Straits Times, it's called. And I remember reading this article and it said this girl and her boyfriend, he was a British guy and she was a Singaporean woman. They had found their driver dead in a basket in the back of their Mercedes Benz. And the couple had fled to Australia because... Australia doesn't have an extradition treaty to send people back to capital offence, meaning that if you're going to be killed, they won't send you back. And then I read the names, and these are people I've been partying with. That it, That is madness. Uh, so these people, you know, they were telling everyone that they were financial planners or whatever it was, and that they were possibly drug dealers. I don't know. And I remember reading the article and thinking, I've been sitting next to this person at parties and here she is on the run for murder and again, Brian, you know, and this is why I'm telling you this because it's this prodigal stuff, right? My religious stuff just comes up going, where are you? What are you doing? Where is God? You know, you walked away from God and now you're, dude, and, and I felt really empty I felt like I was not living up to my own values. I was not happy with who I had become. I was paranoid now because it's like, oh my God, there's all these people and the, you know, the cops are onto them. And then other people I know started getting arrested for, for drug offenses and stuff. And now I wasn't in the scene anymore. I had completely moved away from it, right? But I was paranoid. And it just was just fucking crazy. And I still always felt poor the jobs were shit. It was just, so I said to Renee, because I don't know how long have we been going out for a year and a half. <laughs> I said, let's go back to Australia and get married. Cause that's what you do, right? As I said to you before, same thing with Hayong, you know, we've been together for six weeks, time to get married. So I said to her, let's go back to Australia. Let's get jobs. Let's get the hell out of here. Right. Cause this is just darkness, really total darkness. I just got to get out of here. And so, yeah, so we made the decision to return to Australia, had to sort her visa 
and all that kind of stuff out. And because she was um, a Chinese national living in Singapore, we couldn't do that in Singapore. So we had to go back to China and stay with her parents and sort ourselves out there and get her visa sorted out and everything. And then came back to live with my parents in Brisbane in about early 2003. I do, I do remember this time when you came back and remember you're trying to find your feet. And do I, do I remember correctly that you then potentially explored a few more spiritual avenues that you played around with potentially going back to church, but more of a conservative place? No, it was actually the opposite. So we moved back to Brisbane and because Australia was the place where my faith box was, you know, it's, it's where I had sort of put it into storage and gone overseas. So I think it was no accident that when I got back to Australia, it was there in my face. And so I kind of picked up where I'd left off and I still thought that I believed, but I don't know that I did as much as I was afraid to admit that I didn't. Yeah, I, I, I remember a conversation with you. So maybe you didn't actually take any action from this, but I remember a conversation. Again, I was living in Cairns, so I was, I was in Queensland, but I was still nearly 2,000 kilometres from you. But I remember a conversation with you going, oh, you know, do I toy with even going to a Catholic church where it's less offensive, less in my face? There's a, a bit of liturgy, a bit of some religious practice but not what I came from. Yeah, well, that's that's interesting, yeah, because that is what happened. I reached out to a uniting church, a uniting church minister in my parents' suburb, and he told me about this church in South Brisbane called St. Mary's. It's now called St. Mary's in Exile because they actually got kicked out of the Catholic Church for being too liberal and too too cool. So this uniting church minister, he actually introduced me to the writings of Marcus Borg, and he had been friends with people that had been part of the Jesus Seminar, and he started talking to me about the problems with substitutional atonement and this kind of stuff, and I was just like, what? I had no idea what he's talking about, and it just because I hadn't thought any of this stuff, and he gave me gave me a couple of Marcus Borg titles to read, so I, I read those, and I remember reading those Marcus Borg books and just thinking, so why believe this at all? There's nothing to be saved from. There's no reason to, it just seemed to me like people were trying to hold on to some sort of religion, but there was really no heart to it. And of course, now I see it's very different to that, of course, like people are saying, no, the heart to it is you're a good person and you love people and you do the right thing and you're kind and make the world a better place. And that that's good enough. But I had such a fundamentalist view of salvation and being saved from something that when I was reading this stuff, I was thinking, there's no reason, there's no reason to to do this. There's no fear here, I think is what it came down to, Brian. There was no fear. But anyway, yeah, he told me about St. Mary's and Renee's grandmother had been a Catholic in China. So I thought, let's go along to a to a Catholic church and let's go to this one. And I remember sitting in there in their one of their services and thinking, oh, am I am I going to deal with this? And the the minister read the story about Jesus as a young boy in the temple and astounding them, you know, oh, wow, you know, he, he's just so young. And I remember the priest at the end of it, at the end of the reading said, now this probably didn't happen. And then giving the homily. And I was like, ah, this is cool. You know, I'm, I'm happy with this. But I had this profound moment 
and I don't know if I've told you this before, where it was time for communion. And St. Mary's had a lot of, they were very leftist leaning, Brian, you would have loved them. Extremely leftist leaning, which is why I, I wanted to go there as well. And they were doing a lot of work amongst the poor, homeless, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, all that kind of stuff. And they were really reaching out into the community. And so there was a lot of mental health, people with mental health issues and, you know, and financial issues and all that. And when it came to communion and they started handing out communion, all these basically societal rejects are all lining up for communion. And I just had this profound sense of this spiritual feeling, you know, like we used to get at church when the music was playing, but there was no music playing. It was just people standing up, lining up, getting this Holy Communion. And I didn't go. I remember just feeling what I would have at one stage called the sense of the Holy Spirit. And it really struck me. It was like, wow, it's not about the music. It's not about the the hype. It's not about the Bible. It's about reaching out to these people. And I just had this really, yeah, just this profound moment. But it wasn't enough to make me think I believe. So what's what's happening for you then if if it's not enough for you to want to believe? It's it's certainly a a softer expression, a less offensive expression of spirituality that you know most people would be relatively comfortable with. How is that going with you, that need that you had identified potentially to reconcile with God, is that then chipping away at that going, actually, maybe it's not what I want or need? Renee didn't take to it. You know, she she hadn't been raised in any way a Christian. And I thought that maybe this is what she wanted as well as, you know, something that I could connect with and she didn't. So we just kind of dropped off, you know, and I think I, I sort of parked this stuff again. You know, I just sort of went, oh, can't deal with that. And I was back in Australia and so booze was cheaper. And so I just started drinking again and I started drinking quite heavily. And Renee was wigging out at this. She was really upset at the amount that I was drinking because it had been curbed because of cost. It had been curbed a lot in Singapore, whereas now I was back in Australia, it was affordable again. I started drinking quite heavily again. I think I was still holding on to the label, Brian, because I was shit scared of hell and of going to hell. but. I was unable to connect with any of it anymore. You know, it just, it was just dead to me. Like I said, I had that profound moment where these poor people and these, you know, societal rejects are getting communion. And I had that sense of a, of a spiritual dimension in that moment. And, you know, some people could look at that and say, yeah, that that's legitimate. I don't know. I don't know how to explain that. And I, I don't think, I mean, I've had a sense of spiritual dimensions outside of church and outside of Christianity. So I know Christianity doesn't have a monopoly on that. So again, yeah, it, it was profound, but my faith had crumbled. I didn't believe it and I didn't want to believe it, but I didn't want to say that I didn't believe it because I was shit scared of hell. So I think I just, in a lot of ways, parked it again, drank heavily, partied, except this time it was in Brisbane. But interestingly enough, we connected a lot with Asian immigrants in Brisbane rather than just, you know, my sort of Caucasian crew that I would have once upon a time. But after a little while, 
I decided to go back to my degree, my psych degree, because I wanted to finish that off. So I went to the University of Queensland, enrolled in my psych degree. And after about a year, I realized the psych stuff that I was doing was probably more about trying to help myself than actually a career move. So I had a look at their journalism degrees because I thought I'd love to do radio, which is interesting because now here we are doing a podcast. And I thought I'd love to do radio. I'd love to do radio journalism. And so I actually swapped into a master's of journalism at UQ and went on to do that and ended up completing that. So before we left for China, Renee and I decided to get married. Now, the pressure was on us a little bit because of visas and citizenship and, and all that kind of stuff to just sort of get it done and, and get married. I think, though, there was still this pressure in me from church days is this is what you do. And I would love to tell you that I just totally rejected that and realized that that was all bullshit, but that wasn't the case. I, I think there was still this, you're together for a certain amount of time and this is what you do. Do I regret marrying Renee? Of course not. We're still together. We've got kids, we've got a life and, and I love her with all my heart. But did we get married really fast? Yeah, we did. And I remember at the wedding ceremony, because it wasn't a Christian wedding, right? I intentionally had a secular wedding. And when the person was asking me, you know, for the vows and, you know, repeat after me and all that, I was just freaking out, right? I really was because it was like, what am I doing? Uh, uh, uh. And yet as soon as it was all over, it was like, okay, cool. This was the right thing to do. I really love her. This is really different and, and all that. But at the time, I was just panicking because, because of all the baggage, because of all the, the shit that had, that had gone on before. But it just felt really different. And I, I, think, I think I met up with you at some point. Didn't you come down to, to Melbourne? No, you were in Melbourne maybe and I came down for a trip. Yeah, yes, yes, might have. And, and I think I was maybe at that time I would have only been here on holidays in Melbourne because we didn't return to Melbourne until late 2007. Yeah, so I can remember meeting up with you and I was really quite panicky about meeting up with you and another great big AOG couple. And you, you, I think they were still in it maybe, but you guys had definitely left. And I felt like I needed to show you as well that I was doing okay. But I can remember feeling like I really needed to get to show you and and the other couple that I was doing great. And again, that's that's a sort of a theme in this episode, isn't it? That when I see these ex-Christian people, I feel like I need needed to show no weakness and that these decisions are all good and that I'm doing wonderful and don't you dare fucking judge me. Well, you would have known what people were saying about you. You would have known that people were like, well, you've walked away from God, so your life can't be good. So you have to flip the script. You absolutely have to turn it on, even if it's not accurate. I can remember saying to you guys at the time, I'm doing really well, you know, and, and things are really good. And I remember you looking at me and going, oh, that, that's great, mate. You know, you said to me, and I, I didn't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> at the time. I probably didn't believe you either. I was just being polite. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was a really that was really interesting. And and I think coming back to Australia for that period of time, I think the hardest thing was 
it wasn't just the unresolved issues. It was trying to communicate and trying to present this picture to all these people that I'm okay, that I've left church and I'm okay, knowing full well that in a lot of ways I wasn't okay. But you'd probably, well, not probably, you would have fundamentally changed as a person too after all those years living in Southeast Asia. You've experienced things that many haven't experienced outside of their bubble. Many people within that community certainly didn't mix outside of that community. Here you are mixing on more of a, a, a global platform of, you know, lots of expats, many different cultures that you're mixing with. You're experiencing things. You've got different different context to these people. So I think it would have been a battle in many ways to try and relate. As much as I've painted this picture of this darkness that was happening in Singapore, when I came back to Australia, being able to ground myself with my family and, and others and, and, and really the, the darkness, we just we totally disconnected from it and moved right away from it. And things were better. Things were good. But as soon as I found myself in a situation confronted with like whether I was meeting up with you or whether I was seeing people from the inner city Church of Christ, as soon as I got into those situations, I felt really, really small. I felt like I had something to prove. Like I said to you before, I went into overdrive in terms of extrovert and loud and look how great my life is and that overcompensation because of what I thought those people thought of me and what I felt I needed to to justify myself to these people and justify my existence. And that's that scene. You know, like you said, you've got to turn the narrative around because part of that script is still playing in my mind or was playing in my mind at that stage. And yeah, I just felt really, really small whenever I saw people from that world because I felt like such a Christian failure. And I think as Danielle and Crispin Mayfield were saying when we interviewed them, that world was really suited for people who didn't really like themselves. And I'd started to like myself. Even though I'd, you know, I'd gone into some dark places I was able to pull myself out of that and walk away and starting to really build a successful, at least in terms of education with my postgraduate studies, that was going really well. I had this relationship with this woman that I, that I loved and adored. Yeah, it was strange. As soon as I'd be in front of those kinds of people, I would just be small again. Yeah, it's a, it's a different and confronting world. I completely get that. I completely understand it. And I think it's a... A fairly natural reaction. However, one thing that I do want to pick up on that has been spoken about a lot in this episode. Now, I want to acknowledge that dark and light, yin and yang, it's something that's used quite universally across many different spiritual expressions and religions. But you've spoken about quite a few times about when something was off or something was uncomfortable, you identified it as darkness. And the the reason I pick up on this is it's actually something in the last few years that I've consciously not tried to identify when I, I see something that's a bit shit, something I don't agree with that I try, because I noticed I used to say that, oh, it's a really dark, dark thing. Now, I know people use that again in a mental health sort of context. I went into the darkness, all that sort of stuff. But do you think you still use that language of 
a dark place, that it's a contrast to a light place that you might have identified with good, or is it? Is there something else to it? Is there something still playing in your mind there? To answer that, I really have to skip forward years and years and years because I wouldn't have seen it that way at the time. When I say darkness, I'm not talking about making life choices that are somehow contradictory to Christianity. For example, the story that I told before about this near sexual assault by these gay guys in a swimming pool, it wasn't because they were gay. The darkness was in the fact that they were potentially going to rape me. And to me, that's the darkness. The darkness is not people taking drugs at a party in Singapore. The darkness is people on the run from their own demons, you know, from their own challenges, people dealing with their own pain and their own trauma. That to me is the darkness. As opposed to having some balance. And and that's what I mean by by light. I don't come at that from a Christian perspective of some sort of pronouncement of what is right and what is wrong. But there are things that we do that are good for us and are good for the people around us and are good for the world. And there's things that we can do that are selfish and that take and rob both ourselves and people around us. And that's what I mean by darkness. I I now work with a lot of people in the disability space, right? I, I work in technology, but I work with accessibility and there's a lot of light there, Brian, in what a lot of people are doing in that space. They are contributing, they are building, they are giving. And to me, that is the light. Whereas robbing, taking, selfishness, self-destruction, that's the darkness. So it's not a morality. So you could have one person doing one behavior and another person doing the same behavior, and it might be light for one and dark for another, if that makes sense. So that's what I mean by that. And I think... The darkness in Singapore, there was a lot of people that were just, it was just this intense selfishness and it was this robbing of one another and robbing of themselves. And I know that may sound really progressive Christian sort of talk, but I don't mean it like that. And that and that's what I saw a lot of and being able to walk away from that and saying, and finding out for myself, this is not the life that I choose. This is not what I want to do. And that's very different from the Christian perspective of you are told you are not allowed to do this, as opposed to finding out for myself, is this what I want to, is this what I want to choose? Is this what I want to do? I would say that there's a lot of darkness in churches. You know, again, it's not some sort of moral pronouncement of good and evil, if that makes sense. I actually think that was a brilliant answer. And it was better than I could have anticipated because we certainly didn't script this bit. I just was thinking throughout around that. I think I think it was a beautiful answer, actually. So I think people will get stuff from that because I didn't want it to be interpreted in a way that you were going, there's light and dark, there's this dichotomy, one is good, one is evil, and the evil is attributed to big, bad devils and Satan. To the devil and, and not to church. No, of course I don't mean that. And as a matter of fact, what I'm talking about here sort of aligns itself with some Buddhist ideology or, or, or Buddhist belief that 
we can do things that are good for ourselves and good for our mental states. We can do things that are toxic for ourselves and toxic for our mental states. And so when the Bible talks about, you know, thou shalt not, Buddhism also has thou shalt nots, but it's more about it being good for you rather than some deity telling you what you can and can't do. And I think that's a, a big difference. And I think if Christianity had peddled that, I might not have needed to go and find out for myself because I think that's what all these years were. I think these years in Singapore and Korea were very much about me finding out who I am. And that means sometimes you have to dabble in darkness. That means sometimes you have to go to some dark places and find out, is this where I belong? And the answer was no. People are getting going to jail and, you know, all kinds of bad shit going on. But I had to, I had to look and I had to find out, is this me? And is this what I, what I want from my life? And the answer to a lot of it was no. I think if I went back to a place like Singapore today with my, you know, with my corporate job and with my family in tow and all that, it'd be a very different life. It'd be a very different existence because I know who I am more so now than I did then. And I know what I want out of life and I know what I consider to be things worth pursuing rather than going into dark shadows and dark corners and getting myself into trouble. Nice. I like it. And just just for our listeners, what happened with that couple that did flee Singapore? Were they ever caught, convicted? What happened? She went back to Singapore to face obstruction of justice charges because I think she'd been involved in sort of hiding the body but she hadn't actually committed the murder, so she was able to go back. He would never have gone back because if he did, he would have faced capital punishment. So as far as I know, he stayed in Australia in jail here. Um, he may have been deported back to, back to England at some stage. I don't know. And to be honest, I, I didn't care. It was just like, for me, it was just cutting it off. Like, oh, my God, where did I, where did I almost end up? <laughs> Cut it off, put it behind me and move on. It's good to cut things off and cast them out, I find. So it's a great, great thing. Yeah, bind it in Jesus' name and mm. move on. <laughs> That's right. Sorry for the trigger there, people. So, Brian, why have I told all these stories? It's the same with the career episode because this is what really happened. And I, I guess I want people to see that who we can become is a journey and walking away from church and not knowing who you are and not knowing your own morality and not knowing your own ethics, you know, maybe making some seriously bad choices, but as Billy Joel says, but they're the only things you can truly call your own. And that's what you want when you leave church. I'm not suggesting that people ignore societal wisdom and get into some dark places. I'm not suggesting they do that at all. But for me, I needed to visit some of these places. I need to make some of these choices. I need to find out for myself if this is what I really want. And in the end, and, and I know you don't like this analogy, but in the end, I chose the light. I chose what's good for me. I chose what's good for my family. I chose what's good for my career, all these kinds of things. This is what I chose. But I chose from an informed place, not because some deity or church culture is telling me what to do. And so that's why I think that this is an important part 
of our podcast is to say, yeah, I'm here where I am now and it's a good place. But there was a lot of struggle post-church. And I think if we just presented that you walk away and everything's great, I don't think we're preparing people from the, for the realities of walking away from church because it's hard and it's, it's painful. And there's, there's a certain amount of regret I have for some of the decisions that I've made. But oh well, that's what it was and that's what happened. That's it. You can't beat yourself up forever. And as we've spoken about, self-forgiveness is an incredibly important part of the puzzle. I want to be clear. It's not that I dislike the analogy of dark and light. It needed the explanation. So I didn't want our listeners or even myself identifying with that good, bad, evil. Yeah. And, and especially from a Christian perspective, that's not what I mean. And it would be wrong if people heard that and thought, oh, you know, he wants to walk in the light like DC Talk. <laughs> I, I have been singing that in my, my mind seriously throughout this episode and I was going to quote it but I'm not going to. You just did. But I, I do think it is important and we, the vast majority of people that contact us through our email, which is info at iwasateenagefundamentalist.com and who comment online, uh, thank you for sharing your stories. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for being brave and raw. This is the stuff I can identify with. I don't feel alone. And that's what we want to do by telling the truth, by being raw and going, you know what? We were fuck-ups and we fucked up. And the way that we navigated our way out wasn't a smooth path. I mean, they were very different paths, but neither of them were smooth and we're still navigating our way out. This is why we have a podcast. This is why we have the conversations that we have because it's not just helping you to navigate your way out. We're still navigating our way out. We're still trying to sense make all of those things in our lives and the things that come across our paths. So you are not alone, people. Brian, everything that you just said then is is so true. I think even presenting this and telling our stories Part of me doubts sometimes. It's like, oh, but what if great big AOG people hear this and go, oh, yeah, see? Or what if ex-wives or ex-wives family hear it and go, oh, yeah. And so part of me sometimes goes, oh, should we be saying this? Should we be saying that? And I think, fuck it. Let's just tell the stories because this is really what happened. And there's a lot of people that are walking away from these churches now, not 25 years ago, not 15 years ago that are hopefully going to hear this and go, oh, you know, like they can at least get a, a sense of different trajectories and different places to go. And if this is a trajectory that I'm saying to people, look, you don't want to go this way. If there's anything you can do to avoid some of this, by all means do. But it is it is what happened. It is what happened. And look, the experiences that we talk about now and many people have confirmed this who've walked away more recently – they fit. They fit 25 years ago. They fit now. The narrative is the same. If anything, it's got more aggressive and it's ramped up more. But I think that it certainly fits. Yeah. And, and I think a big difference too is that there's so much more support out there now. You know, there's those Instagram accounts that just publish this awesome stuff about religious trauma and about, you know, finding yourself and about being true to yourself and, you know, podcasts like ours and others you know, the, the cheers to leaving ladies that are doing some great stuff. There's now, you know, the feet of clay ladies that are doing awesome stuff. I'd like to think we're doing some awesome stuff. There's so much you can draw on 
that you don't have to go this solo path. And I think a lot of the decisions that I made were because I was just so alone. And if we can stop anybody from having to suffer that, fantastic. You know, let's make two podcasts if we can do that. And to have a final word, Troy, WWBJD, because Billy Joel has been quoted a couple of times in this episode. So what would Billy Joel do? Don't forget your second wind, because sooner or later, you'll feel your momentum kick in. (laughs) That's what he says. (laughs) So from us and Billy Joel, we are going to put a pin in it. And there certainly is more stories to come, Troy, of I know what happens from here onwards. This is probably when we started to connect a little bit more again. So down the track. Troy will tell those stories. But thank you for today. Thank you for your bravery. Thank you for your honesty. These stories that were said before sometimes don't always paint us in the best light, and that is a very important part of it. Yeah, this was hard. I I felt the whole time I was talking, I felt like I was up against a wall. You know, I think emotionally it's like, uh, you know, and I know it, it doesn't make me look good, but this is what happened. And there's a million stories out there, Brian, just like this one. I know it. I'm not alone. But, yeah, thanks for listening, my friend. No, not a problem. There are a million stories because there's a million Billy Joel songs that we can peg them to. So we look forward to that because sooner or later it comes down to fate. The Catholic girls start much too late. And from Troy and I, we would like to say goodbye. Yeah, I'm going to go spend some time with my Chinese uptown girl. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group, and we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, And the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes. 